Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 20th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, inviting you to join us at CommentaryMagazine.com to sample the treasures of our 75th anniversary issue now online at CommentaryMagazine.com, featuring a beautiful personal essay by Joseph Epstein called My Commentary about his uh, experience over seven decades uh, as a commentary reader, writer, and now sort of like a, a senior statesman. A uh, piece by Matt Contnetti on commentary's uh, historic role in its effect on American foreign policy and thinking about the world, and a conversation between me and my legendary father, Norman Podhoritz, about the experience of editing commentary. Christine Rosen has a big piece uh, in there called Joe Biden's Big Lie. Got a fantastic piece by James Meggs on why the media stink at science. Uh, Josh Moravchik on on how Israel helped win the Cold War. Uh, Barton Swaim on the on the evil of the elites. Terry Teachout on Cary Grant. Uh, Rob Long on QAnon, just a lot of, uh, and a, a really amazing piece by Marisol Levechuk on the Abraham Accord. So join us, Commentary Magazine. You're only going to be able to read a couple of things. You're going to want to read more. So you know what you're supposed to do right then is subscribe. Subscribe, CommentaryMagazine.com, 75th anniversary. We are now one of the uh, oldest surviving magazines in America and probably in the West. Uh, and there's a reason that we have survived and thrived. So take a look. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Who else is having a great day? I am having a great day. I'm not really going to go into depth about why I'm having a great day, but uh, a, a longtime um, frenemy enemy of mine has been laid low, uh, and so uh, I, I uh, as as... Clive James, the late Clive James, once wrote one of the great comic poems of our time called The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered. Uh, and so I am sort of in that uh, position uh, with uh, with today's most notorious uh, story uh, in media and social media. But I'm not going to go into any depth just to say that I am in a deeply sunny mood today. And, uh, and uh, this is not Crushing Morosity Day for me. Uh, let me just move on to say another reason not to have crushing morosity is all this news that suggests that despite uh, the bad turn in the coronavirus numbers, that people really should be reopening schools. So uh, the New York City school system did a random survey of 11,000 students, which is about 1% of the population of the, of the school system. 11,000 students, 18 positive corona cases, 18. I don't even know that that shows up as a percentage number, 18 out of 11,000. I mean, I'm sure it does. It's like 0.001% or something like that, uh, which obviously means that they need to reopen the schools five days a week now. However, uh, the Fairfax County Public Schools... In Virginia, uh, one of the most affluent school districts in America, uh, has announced, uh, its teachers union has announced, that they believe that the school system should be closed till August 2021. Uh, Draw and hold the line by keeping Fairfax County Public Schools virtual for the remainder of the 2021 school year. Science and health safety data support and require that no one should return to in-person instruction until there is a widely available, scientifically proven vaccine or highly effective treatment. Okay? So now we really get to the nub of this, which is, are they just saying this because they, they prefer staying home and they don't want to commute and they don't want to be in a building and they would, they, this is fantastic for them? They're sitting on a screen blathering. They look at a screen, see kids or don't see kids, or they don't even see kids because they're not they're not doing this uh, seven hours a day. Um, this is disgraceful. Uh, they should all be fired. Uh, the entire school system should be repopulated with new teachers, as far as I can tell. All the data that we have support the reopening of schools. Almost, if you can open reopen the schools in New York City 
where there is an outbreak, now you can reopen them everywhere. Uh, does anyone have any argument with this? I'm serious because, like, I know I'm getting kind of crazy. One other data point I want to share with you again, in the middle of New York City, in the middle of an outbreak, blah, blah, blah. My son's school, the Abraham Joshua Heschel School, did testing. Every single child and staffer at the school was tested last week. 1,360 tests done, one positive. I mean, I, 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 you know, what are you going to do? Do some kind of demographic study that says the Jewish day school kids are less likely to get the virus? I thought Jews were all super spreaders because we go to all these big, we want to go to shul and we go to all these big weddings that are killing people. Anyway, that's my rant. Christine, you have kids who are not allowed to go to school. Yes, I, I have. I, I have a, absolutely. I, I'm appalled, quite frankly, because uh, we have a similar problem here in D.C. where the teachers unions have, have bullied, cajoled and threatened the mayor uh, who was actually starting to inch towards a more reasonable uh, reopening plan until they all showed up in front of her office and threw body bags at the door. And then it was, no, we're shutting down until after the election or sorry, after the term which also happens to coincide with the election. Um, and, you know, the, the most recent, they're going to try to bring back some elementary school students, but there's there's a, a lot of opposition to that. But for high schoolers, which is what my kids are, um, they're, they're not even talking about reopening in January. We haven't even heard of a plan for reopening in the spring. And I think to the point about we'll follow the science, we'll follow the data, there's a huge amount of data and science now about the the. Uh, negative effects on students of not having in-person learning, particularly students who are the most vulnerable, who are in low-income households, where they have a lot of chaos in their domestic lives, and school is the one certain stable structure. They get good meals there, they get um, adult supervision, and, and they get an education. So I think that the idea that the teachers unions will very soon, they're already hurtling towards this, if you look at the data, certainly in places like New York, but in Fairfax County here in D.C. and others, they are hurtling towards a towards a moment in the near future, like in the next few months, where they will be actively working against the interests of their own students by demanding that schools stay closed. All of these places have the will can can easily set up a situation where there's an option for some sort of virtual learning for high risk groups, right? That is a small percentage of students. They do this with the IEP students who have their own educational plans. If they have learning challenges, it's not impossible to do. There is not the political will among these leaders to do it. And there certainly doesn't seem to be a political will among the unions. I'm not saying the teachers. I know I've spoken to lots of individual teachers who are appalled that they have so little, there's so little effort to reopen. So I think this is going to be a serious challenge in the new year for a lot of school districts, um, not just uh, DC and Fairfax County, but all over the country. The ones that are reopening have found ways to do it. I think parents should start getting much more uh, vigorous about uh, challenging their leadership on this. I don't know. <laughs> it's not just, you know, dark blue union heavy states. There was a, uh, in Idaho yesterday, there was right. a uh, coordinated sick out. out. 500 teachers just said we're not showing up. And so schools had to stay closed. Now, everybody who's followed the data really closely um, knows that we have a lot of evidence to suggest that transmission in places like schools uh, is is difficult. Um, and that not just schools, by the way, but, you know, other places that have been the sources of anxiety, like movie theaters and airplanes. We don't have evidence of major super spreading events or even spreading events, transmission in these places. It's simply based on a hunch or a theory. I just, what we do know no, is that... I add that also, uh, in the case of planes, there's a new U.S. military study that says that it's almost impossible to, to, to spread it on a, the virus on a plane. Not just that, but we had data last month that for the first time since the virus started, uh, a million uh, passengers were screened by TSA uh, in the United States flying. That's a million people in planes where's the outbreak yeah where, where are people where yeah I and mean, if you're changing your hepa filter every 20 minutes it's in recirculated air it makes a little sense that it's difficult to to transmit but what we do know and this is why i have a little bit of sympathy for idaho's teachers not a ton but that community transmission is the issue not in schools so schools are lower transmission rates than the community in which they're situated usually but they're correlated which makes sense 
Um, so if your community is experiencing a spike like Idaho's is, it's at least not completely irrational to be trepidatious about going outside. But that same thing cannot really be said for the Northeast, not right now, unless you think that the nation exists as this as a whole, and we shouldn't really be breaking this data up by states, and we should really be just focusing on the country as a whole. And there's no uniform approach to that. It's really whatever is most politically advantageous at the time for whatever political faction is making their argument that we should count the nation as a country and all our COVID cases uniformly and as, as one whole or break it up by states. And it just depends on the political objective you're seeking in the moment. Well, well and the, to, yeah. the, to the point about changing the Fairfax County really a statement really struck me because they said until we have a vaccine or useful treatments. Well, we already have useful treatments. If you look at hospitalization and death rates, it's very clear that there that our the medical community has gotten a better handle on how to treat people who present it at an ICU or an emergency room with with COVID. And most people don't. I mean, those numbers are are way down um, uh, across the country. But what I thought was interesting is that if if the new goalpost that's being established here is a working vaccine, then you also have to have some sort of compulsory measure to insist everybody get vaccinated. And that's going to never happen. Like there, there are going to be people who opt out. There are going to be people who resist getting vaccinated. Um, and so I just, my fear is that even once we have a vaccine, um, they're not going to get to the percentage of people vaccinated. They're, they're going to just keep shifting these goalposts to, as Noah said, to pursue a political objective that really has nothing to do with the safety of either the students or the teachers. Can we talk briefly, though, about how incredibly reckless and irresponsible the Democratic governors have been about this vaccine craze? They're, they're, it's not cool to be an anti-vaxxer. Mm-hmm. Like this was, this was native to the right, this kind of paranoia, for the entirety of my understanding of this issue until... A couple of weeks ago, at which point it became super hip to suggest that Donald Trump was trying to rush out a vaccine by himself somehow, and it would come by Election Day. Election Day is now in two weeks. There's not going to be a a rushed approved vaccine before Election Day. And we still have people like Andrew Cuomo in New York and Gavin Newsom in California who are talking about creating independent panels and commissions to study whatever the FDA approves because it can't be trusted. And Kamala Harris saying, you know, I'll take it if, if, you know, the scientists say it's all right, but not if Donald Trump says it's all right. This is incredibly irresponsible, and it is driving down support for taking a vaccine to dangerous, to dangerous levels. Um, the, uh, the, the survey that I have here from Stat Harris, 2,000 people conducted between October 7th and 10th found that um, only 59% of respondents said they would get the vaccine right away, down from about 70% in August. And fewer than, than, than um, um, a plural, only a, less than a majority of black respondents, 43% down from 65% in August, said they would get the vaccine. African-Americans are uniquely vulnerable to this thing. And that is something that Democrats would be responsive to if the political incentive wasn't to be opposed to Donald Trump, whatever the opposition to Donald Trump consists of. It is reckless in the extreme, irredeemable. Right. Well, I mean, this is where we get to the heart of the these interlocking points. So there is the question of whether or not what is going on here. And I, there's, it's not a conspiracy. It is more like a kind of a mood that has um, overtaken uh, people who have an antipathy to Trump and wish to see him defeated that the, the virus is a stand in for everything, the condition of the country and that uh, should the condition of the country change as a result of the election, then the way that we proceed after the election is going to change. Because suddenly we will have reason to hope that things will be better and we will have reason to believe that the science will be working for us instead of against us and we will have reason to believe yada da da da. So uh, as we have been alluding to over the course of the last couple of months – we kind of expect that a Biden victory is going to result in a sea change in the way public officials on among liberals and leftists and Democrats start talking about the future and the disease in a more hopeful, uh, more uh, optimistic, more upbeat way, because they are going to want to change the narrative here and they are going to feel different about the future and all of that. Then the question is, what if Trump prevails? If Trump prevails, 
are we going to be in this world of no one no one gets the vaccine there won't, won't be a vaccine we can't trust the vaccine uh and what if trump you know fires fauci after the election because that that's the that's been the default it's like i'll listen to fauci i'm not going to listen to trump right i'm not going to listen to trump i'm going to listen to fauci trump clearly heads fauci he would like him gone if he wins the election, he can he can fire him. And then it'll be, I'm never taking a vaccine because of Trump. Nothing will reopen ever again. The entire country will be driven, will be punished for reelecting Trump by forcing us to remain, at least in the larger states, in this condition of doldrums as long as is humanly possible. And again, the incentive structure for Cuomo and Newsom is exactly what you think it is. According to the latest New York Times Siena poll, I believe, or maybe the PRI poll from yesterday, 75 to 90% of people, including major a majority of Republicans, believe that the cautious and prudent approach to the virus and the threats of a second outbreak and all of that are proper. And there are these you know vast majorities for masking and all of this. So it's not as though the public is going to turn on them. And so, you know, we are again in some condition of existential blackmail where if, if Biden doesn't win uh, emotionally, the, these guys are going to leave us in this condition of attenuation for as long as they themselves can tolerate it. And, and then to get to the other thing, this then dovetails with, I think, these teachers' unions going, you know what? This isn't so bad. I get to stay home. I don't have to look at the, you know, I don't have to deal with, you know, uh, you know uh, Kevin over there, you know, pulling so-and-so's uh, braid. Uh, you know, it's all happening on Zoom. And who cares if the kids' are, brains are being fried? For 20 years, we have been told, if you're a parent... Only let kids use screens an hour or two hours a day, if at all. Don't let them live on screens. It's bad for their attention. It's bad for their soul. It's bad for their psyche. It's alienating. It it distances them from real life and real experiences. It means they don't read. It means they don't have long focus. We have now integrated these devices eight hours a day into schooling. Eight hours a day. Now, unless if all of that was nonsense, fine. I'm actually willing to believe that all of that screens are terrible stuff is nonsense. But they haven't said it's now nonsense and it's okay to be on screens eight hours a day. So let's say it's not nonsense. So in order to protect the couple of million people or to protect with quotes around it, the couple of million people who work in schooling, 75 million kids are having their brains fried through their ears. This is not, I don't, I was going to say, this is not, it's not going to stand, there's going to be a revolt, but of course there is already a revolt, but the revolt is by the moneyed. The revolt is all these people essentially setting up schools, they're setting up these pods, these education pods with tutors. You yeah, know what we call that? Them. Right, right. Yeah, you know what we call that? A school. Right. It's a one-room schoolhouse. You ever saw you ever see a one room schoolhouse in a rural place? It's a building. It stands there. There were like fifteen kids in it, in all grades. And there's one teacher or two teachers, and they're helping all the kids in different ways. We're building so people of means are building one room schoolhouses all over the country, and poor black and Hispanic kids and poor white kids are having their brains come out of their ears. Well, and it's not just the poor kids. It's anyone who can't afford to either uh, devote to, to to not work and focus solely on educating their kids themselves in a homeschool-like environment, which some people have been able to do. Um, but not everybody can do that. And there's plenty of people who are still trying to do their jobs every day. They're working parents who can't afford the pod system, but don't have the spare manpower to actually uh, 100% homeschool their kids. That's a lot of people. So all I'm I'm among them. A lot of us are just doing the best we can with our kids. And honestly, if this goes into the spring, 
it would have been better if a lot of these school districts that have these extremely um, uh, these extremist union takes on this had just canceled the school year because then we could have just done a bunch of stuff with our kids and not worried about meeting any metrics that are that are going to matter very little for them and just called it a wash for everyone right? right because the other stealth thing I'm noticing is all the discussions of how grades are bad and grades are unfair and th- there's a whole social movement that wants to uh change the way we assess student performance and this year is going to give them a whole lot of fodder for those arguments arguments that are that are long term very pernicious and right. and about undermining standards well they're going to i mean i'm more open to them i don't think it's fair to assess kids based on how they're learning right now because it's completely demoralizing to learn this way for these kids particularly i mean for all ages right. um each and age it is, is a risk and it is already happening right so yes. basically uh for college prep, uh, the boards are dead, right? The people are not going to be required to take the SAT or ACT as seniors for admission to college in 2020 and for the 2021-2022 school year. The interesting question about that, which goes to this whole issue of whether or not these boards are fair or unfair or are they meritocratic or because they can be gamed by, by people who have enough money to study for them, whether they should be done away with. The real question is, will they be brought back once we get to the 2022-23 school year? Because maybe these admissions departments will be happier uh, to do it without them. Uh, because then they don't have to deal with all pe- people complaining that it's unfair. Of course, what's interesting there is you then have an ambitious process that turns entirely subjective. Not that it's not already subjective. It's plenty subjective. But there was this one thing, these two things that people had, that these departments, these admissions offices had, that were not impressionistic. One was grades, and the other was these boards. So in theory... You can compare students based on how they do in terms of their grades, even though some are in bad schools and some are in good schools. And you can compare them in some broad measure by how they do on these tests because they all take them, even if it's not fair because certain kids seem to have an advantage because they have enough money to hire tutors or go to a Princeton review class or whatever, right? So that's the college level. Then we're talking about what Christine's talking about, which is how how are they going to grade? How are they going to grade kids based on Zoom education? Like these are these teachers will never meet these kids physically if they don't have school. They're just they're just little postage they, stamps on a on a screen. They, okay, I was about also, to curse. I was well, about to curse. Sometimes they don't even literally see their faces because in some of these schools, because of privacy concerns, you're, these kids are not required to turn their cameras on for class. They're just required to log in. So there are plenty of I when I spoke to many of my son's teachers, they're like, I haven't even seen some kids' faces because that's a policy meant to protect the students. But in fact, I think it harms them. Ultimately, they don't, I mean, right. they, the teachers can have completely outsourced, are able to outsource because they have no control over the situation, all the responsibility for maintaining any sense of a classroom um, uh, characteristics and, and engagement. And they can't, it's not possible to do that with virtual learning. And in many cases, they don't even see their students at the older grade levels at right. least. So let's take a step back and let me talk to you about today's sponsor. We're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principled and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. Let me give you a scenario that Donors Trust has given me. Each year, Sally invests in numerous charities with her finances and time. Now, thanks to a recent property sale, she also has the resources to support these charities long-term. She could have written personal checks to accomplish her charitable goals, but instead she opened a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust. At Donors Trust, she knew she would spend less time on administration and more time having an impact. A donor-advised fund is like a charitable savings account where you can manage your giving in a smart, tax-advantaged, and private way. Donors Trust is unique, working with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that strengthen America. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to donorstrust.org slash commentary for our six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. That's donorstrust.org slash commentary. 
and we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, so there we are, and we also have this other question about kids and disease and the super spreading of the disease. None of us is an epidemiologist. We're all learning on the fly. I think it's fair to say that whenever I have a conversation about this stuff with schooling with people who are more um, nervous than I am, they say, but kids are super spreaders. They're super spreaders and they're, they're, you know, they'll make the teacher sick. They'll make the elders sick. And I, I, I just am not sure that's true. We were told in July and August that it was likely to be true. And then that idea was then bolstered and ballasted by this these stories about uh, colleges when kids got back to college and all these people testing positive. And so that was a proof that they were all getting each other sick. And therefore, they were super spreaders and they would get everybody else sick. But um, those stories stopped uh, like around the second week in September. Uh I believe the number of hospitalizations that we are aware of from those supposed outbreaks on campuses, hospitalizations, was three. And remember, we are still, for people 25 and under, I believe that the death toll from corona is somewhere around 500 out of the 220,000 who have died. So basically, kids are not getting sick. They are not super spreaders as far as we can tell. The opening of schools where they have been opened, because it's not the whole country isn't shut down, have not seen outbreaks. When is this conversation going to shift to the fact that this is a disease that is uniquely deadly to the old, which we knew at the beginning, and this notion that there's going to be a massive outbreak of this disease and it's going to spread among the youth has largely been disproven by our seven-month experience with it. Yeah, we knew this ahead of time. Um, <clears throat> there was no evidence or data abroad where schools were open to suggest that this was going to be a, a source of transmission. It was a claim made without evidence. The claim is still being made it contradicting existing evidence. Um, just to put a you know finer point on it, the uh, Brown University, as, in the end of September, when we started opening the schools and we actually had a couple of weeks of data to look back on it, Brown University conducted a study which found that um, confirmed cases among uh, students was 0.078% and 0.15% for teachers. Um, really just below the point at which it's, it's even, it's, it's a threat, it's measurable, but it's barely a threat. And the reason it, why this is something that people are latching onto in a, in a faith-based way is the same reason that they're going after the vaccine is because to do anything otherwise would be to admit the Trump administration was right. The Trump administration has been actively lobbying schools to open. They did so, um, I think more with a political objective in mind than, but there were, it was a political objective that was supported by the data and it runs contrary to the interests of the constituents in the democratic party. And so they sided with their constituents. It's a very simple story. It's a sordid one. It's an unpalatable one, but it's not one that's hard to tell. And it's probably up to us to tell it because no one else really wants to, but there is no evidence to suggest that this was a big problem. And the Trump administration was farsighted and their, their, Policy recommendations were backed up by data. They were right, and they deserve to get credit for it. Um, on that point about the Trump administration having been right, so if you look at Europe now, uh, I think Ireland just went down into into a, into a new national lockdown, um, and uh, Europe, the European Union numbers generally now, uh, day after day, they have higher uh, case rates than the U.S. does week after week now. Um, does that mean that if if Trump and his administration has handled this so poorly here, does that mean that every that now that Europe is doing worse than us every day, does that mean that every leader among those European nations has done a, a worse job than Trump? 
that he's that he's yeah the talking point was we're the worst in the world right in in relative terms and uh in right. absolute terms whatever terms you want to make we were the worst yeah oh, and oh, that, oh. that never was supported by evidence right. it was always another expression of antipathy towards the president we don't evaluate this virus like it's a virus nope evaluate it like it's a political circumstance, like it's a controversy. That's well, right. and that's why there's there, there's a there's a real uh, disappeared body count uh, because of that. I think the, the the most egregious, obviously, since he's out there flacking his book about how he saved New York from COVID was Cuomo and the nursing home statistics, which every time someone brings him up, someone else tries to swat them away. And he himself actively lies about this when he's talking about how he did with COVID. But I think even geopolitically, there are going to be just countless deaths that are never counted because it wasn't a COVID death, but it is a, a silent death related to COVID. The people who died at home alone of illnesses that could have been treated in a hospital, but they didn't go because of of what was going on with COVID and the lockdowns, the people who didn't get cancer treatments or preventive screening. I mean, actually in the UK, which is going through another kind of tiered lockdown right now, they've had a couple of studies of various regions in the UK and they've, they've, they've got a number that they can estimate about deaths that would have, that were preventable if, if folks had not been on such serious lockdown. So there's even beyond the sort of horrifying 200,000 uh, plus deaths in the U.S., there are going to be all these other people who who perished because of a because of our policy choices. Some of those probably were not avoidable, especially at the height of the pandemic in certain cities, but others were, and those those lives matter too. I, it, it frustrates me to no end every time Cuomo is is praised as some sort of amazing leader. And I don't live in New York; it must be worse for you guys. But it, uh, I, I do think those those are the people and the deaths that we don't want to talk about because it points exactly to what Noah was saying, which is many of these decisions were political. Now, by the way, <clears throat> none of this is to say that, say, Trump's peculiar uh, refusal to sort of advocate openly for the wearing of masks is a responsible thing to do. The whole point no, about totally masking, yeah. the whole point about masking is it is the lowest cost, least intrusive form of prevention that there is. Now, people clearly take it very personally. They don't like it. They don't like wearing them. They don't like being told that they should wear them. They don't like, you know, this is this great division in American society between people for whom the safety culture is paramount and who really want to be told how to live in a way that is safe. And they like safety regulation. They like, you know, laws that control diet and 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 how you drive and what you do and what you should do with your kids and car seats and all that 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 is comforting to them it makes them feel better it makes them feel safer and then you have the world of people who do not as adults like to be told by authorities how they are to live their lives and how they are to comport themselves and trump is speaking to that second body of opinion with all of this. It is a kind of message breaking through the media narrative that he is with them and not with the safety weenies. The problem is that masking is nothing. You know, it's not a lockdown. The mask is a way of avoiding a lockdown. The mask is a way of saying, you know, if I have it, and I don't, I probably don't, but there's a one or 2% chance that I have it. I'm not going to spread it to you. And you do the same for me. And it's a kind of mutual, you know, it's like not walking around insulting people or not walking around naked, or it's like you could walk around naked. Uh, it'll be embarrassing to you. And it'll be shaming you know, other people will be sort of horrified by it, or, you know, whatever you want to do on a zoom call, but I'm not going there. Um, <laughs> Only people who work at the New Yorker are allowed to walk around. Yeah, naked. Okay, so um, uh, uh, you know, and so if, if if you then stipulate that this culture is being driven and defined by the by the request or the demand that you wear a mask, um, then you are providing no security, no safety, nothing. I mean, that's the interesting aspect of this: is that. Uh, the Democrats are pushed into lockdown, and then that un in turn pushes the kind of Trump side of the discussion into nothing, right? <laughs> like, not only don't lock down, not only open schools, not only open restaurants and bars and everything like that, 
but don't socially distance and don't wear a mask. Well, and so don't. So the only answer to that is the vaccine. Well, there is this, no. But this okay, is where sorry. I think Trump, if Trump had been a different person or even was capable for a couple of weeks of different messaging, his own experience with the virus and his recovery from it could have been uh, something that dampened that. Because I agree, it's completely irresponsible how he's talked about this on numerous occasions. And the people who won't wear masks are just, you know, it's ridiculous. Like, just put the mask on. It's really not a big ask. Um, he turned it into one for his own political purposes, but he could have, you know, as Actually, credit to him. Chris Christie did sort of say, I was irresponsible. I should have been more careful. I should have worn a mask. That's actually what leadership looks like. And he has been a poor leader. So if this election ends up being a referendum on his handling of the virus, he should lose by those However, However, if he wins, and we should go into this a little bit, I suspect if he wins, this will actually maybe why he wins, that what we have here is not a shy Trump voter but a shy mask voter, which is to say people are lying to pollsters about their comfort or their willingness to wear masks and to do, you know, preventative measures. Cause as I say, we see these polls, it's like 75% or preposterous numbers of people know has been saying this for months, say they wear masks all the time, right? 90% of people say they wear masks when they go outside. We know that is not true. I mean, it's get it's pretty close to being true in Manhattan, from what I can tell. It is really weird to see someone without a mask now. But of course, we live through hell here, and people are still very rattled. And there are, you know, and you can't get on a subway without wearing a mask, and you wouldn't. And you can't get on a bus without wearing a mask, and you wouldn't. Um, but what if those people are saying, yes, I wear masks, and then Trump gets this big vote, and he will be getting this big vote because it will be... You people have driven us crazy with all this, 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 what's going on here. And we won't take it, but we can't tell you we feel this way because we know that that's our id talking. That's not anyway. I'm not sure it's the, it's the, it's an anti-mask vote so much as I think there are a number of, a number of people out there and there's probably growing as, as long as this, as this goes on, who are getting something from the happy talk, from the Trump happy talk. They want to believe this is over or just about to be over. Or, you know, I was watching Trump in, in Arizona yesterday and they want to believe what his message was there about the virus, which was, you know, Christine, you talk about how he could have, after having recovered from it, done a Christie kind of uh, mea culpa. But Trump's message was, see, I told you it's nothing. Look, I'm fine. I went in. I didn't feel good. I took a cure and I'm out. Barron got sick. Nothing. It was like nothing. Um, you know, and I think I think there's a, a hopeful a sort of, you know, there's like a a, a, a kind of wishful um, vote, perhaps, that that yeah. if we take the right kind of attitude, if we don't drive ourselves crazy with this, yeah. life will go on. Yeah, but I Churchill find it particularly unpersuasive for a variety of reasons. One, maybe we'll get into later, hopefully, which is the divergence and polling, for example, on Amy Coney Barrett. Um, where you have a whole lot of people who are, people are being honest to pollsters because a lot of people who don't support Donald Trump do support her. Um, so the notion here that everybody's lying to pollsters based on their partisan preferences is, is betrayed by a, a variety of other conditions. Secondly, you have to ignore all of the Trump administration and just pay attention only to the president to get this happy talk. When it comes to masks, for example, CDC director Redfield testified before Congress mm-hmm. that even in the advent of a vaccine, uh, it may be 70% for effective. And quote, if I don't get an immune response, the vaccine is not going to protect me. This face mask will. In other words, face masks are never going away, ever. Because if you're immunocompromised, it doesn't matter if you wear a mask, everyone else has to. So yeah, in but- other words, you will have to enforce masking in your local environments for the rest of eternity. Yeah. As according to the Trump administration. Right. But that's when you remember this, there was a whole controversy about this where Trump said that Redfield misspoke. And I think he did misspeak because the whole point about the mask is for you not to spread the disease to someone else. Not that it's there as a, as a filter to mean that you don't, you know, inhale the toxin. That's what I said. So it doesn't matter if you're immunocompromised, everyone in your environment has to be masked. That's what he said. Right. No, but he also said. I don't think he's mistaken. I, I think he's mistaken there. No, he said. Logic makes perfect sense. No, he said. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, 
you're right that yeah that there there are multiple messages, but I, I I mean Abe is right that maybe people want to hear that it's all all going away, uh, but the behavior of Trump is a little like when he wants to quote Winston Churchill, right? Who said who said keep calm and carry on and with all of this. Churchill went into the bunker when the air raid siren went off. He didn't walk around in London saying, come at me, bomb. You know, that's where it, you know, you're not saying the mask is the middle ground. It's the, it's the, it's the way you deal with stuff so that you can go on to do other things. And it's a real metaphor for our politics, right? Because the polarization is the only, we have polarization and you probably have quantitatively more people right there where it's like, you know what? I hate wearing the mask, but I'm going to do it. Noah just wore one on a plane for how many hours? And you were like, "Eh, it's terrible, but it's what you do. That's most people. I think that's most reasonable Americans who want to do the right thing, even if they're uncertain that it might be a little much, which is, but, but that's not how our politics works anymore, right? It's polarization on either side. So it's either total lockdown, you're all going to die, you're a grandma killer, or it's, you know, nothing to see here, no problem. I beat it, look at me and... So I, I don't even think there, I, I agree with Abe that the happy talk is actually refreshing after the doom and gloom and lockdown talk of so many months. Um, but I don't think most Americans, they mistrust it even as they want to hear it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Okay. I want to complain at Christine and Noah. And here's why. <laughs> Abe and I wear glasses and you guys don't wear glasses. And you have no idea what a pain in the ass the mask it is if you, do, if you yeah. don't wear sure do. That's true. Glasses. Yeah. Sunglasses, sunglasses. <laughs> we can't see without our corrective I, I, lenses. My kids you can go to take soccer sunglasses every off. Sunday. Yeah, and you are oh, compelled one day by the soccer field to wear your masks on the soccer field, which doesn't make okay. Any I'm sorry, sense wearing whatsoever. your sunglasses one day a week is not the same <laughs> as walking around in a state of perpetual like Let the you're in reflects a, like you're in a steam room. We you're in a steam room, Noah. You're, what you're going through, and we do. It's as though Broadway in Manhattan is a steam room. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. It's a steam so, room. By the way, I've submitted. I, do, I, I wear the mask now outdoors at all times with my glasses fogging up because I don't want to be scolded by others. That is the sole reason. Right. And that's just what's it, what... So society and the okay. So just follow Director Redfield's logic here because I think it makes perfect sense. We have the advent of this vaccine. It's roughly seventy percent effective, like a flu vaccine. People who are immunocompromised are not protected or perceived to not be protected by this vaccine. So if you go outside without a mask, you're killing immunocompromised people. What are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to stay inside forever? How selfish are you? But this, they- is, this is just our, our life now. I don't know. I saw Safe. I think you're supposed to stay inside forever if you're immunocompromised. Wasn't it the whole point of that movie, Safe, <laughs> with Julianne Moore, right. uh, 15, 20 years, 25 years ago, whenever the hell that was? I don't know. I'm just, I, I'm being, I'm being silly. But, um, you know, obviously the entire society can't be designed to, you know, uh, to be afflicted and, and slow down and live, you know, with, with, with no economic growth or anything like that for a relatively tiny number of people. But having well, if it does go away, we look back on it like it's a moral panic. Yeah. And there's just no there's no reckoning for it. There's no like reconciliation commission about who went crazy where. It's just sort of we all chalk it up to madness and and move on. But but it you can't say that a virus that has killed 230,000 people and is likely now probably to reach 300,000 by the end of the year, assuming no, you know, assuming that things stay kind of the way they are and they kind of go the way they're going, that that was madness. That's 300,000 extra deaths. That's not the flu. (laughs) Once again, we are 10 times more virulent than the flu. Now you can make some kind of weird cost benefit analysis and it's not weird. I mean, the problem is this will be the work of social science for the next decade in figuring out what did lost income do to life expectancy? What did it do to this? What did it do to that? Can you quantify the opportunity costs that were posed by our response to the lockdown in terms of lives and whether that... What somehow, I'm trying to say yeah. here, though, is that this is all a lie. 
is that the notion that we're all going to lock down forever because we're killing, you know, compromised people even after a vaccine is not going to happen because this is all a lie. We already have the predicate to declare it a lie, which is the WHO saying, you know, we never actually advocate lockdowns. And they're only really effective in the most extraordinary of circumstances where you have unrestrained community transmission. Yeah, but that's 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 weird because on which we ease all this stuff in the post-Trump era. Yeah, but. You're, you're saying this, and the WHO said this, it's lost all of its credibility, and now Britain's on a lockdown, and Israel's on a lockdown, and they, they, they modify it, then they unmodify it, now Sweden's about to lock down, because it seems to have determined that its experiment in living unlocked down had an unacceptably high casualty rate? I, I don't know. I mean, it's all too complicated. If it were only us... And our response had been the only response. Then we might be able to say we're crazy and everybody else, we were lunatics and we live in this safety culture that is so awful. But as far as I can tell, every country on earth did some modified version of this, at least at some point during the course of the spread of the virus. In response to political circumstances, not necessarily scientific circumstances, which is fine. Because this is what the politics If everybody does demand. it, if everyone, if 200 you know, countries did it or every advanced country on earth did it, the political circumstances are the health circumstances. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how you separate public health. If it's a universal response, at some point you have to say that there's some, you know, it, this so was the only So it's a public policy preference. So call it a public policy preference. But it was you're the pursuing only... a public policy preference. You're not deferring to dispassionate panels of scientists who oh, are, you know, are farsighted and see with clairvoyant vision into the future. You're not. You're just responding to polls. But it was the only available response. There was no other available response except to say, we'll take our chances and see if we can develop herd immunity. There was no available response, and politicians can't stand there and do nothing. They can't. I mean, as we've now seen, because politicians of every ideological stripe in authoritarian countries and democracies, left-wing governments, right-wing governments, all of that did respond in a fundamentally common way. Now, maybe we led them and we were being idiots leading them this way, but that's just the way it is. Now, let's move on. Uh, before we close to some of this stuff we wanted to talk about polling. I have one thing to say about polling, and then, uh, Lo, you have interesting things to say about Amy Coney Barrett and polling. Uh, There's a poll out today, New York Times, Siena, nine points, Biden 50, Trump 41. Um, The response to this, as I've seen on social media since it came out at 5 o'clock this morning, is panic. It's panic because it's not larger. And a lot of people, liberals and people who hate Trump, are now consumed with the freakout that 40 or 45% of the public, let alone uh, enough to win the Electoral College, support him at all. Because they have now worked themselves up into a frenzy in which any person on earth preferring Trump to Biden is a contributor to the death of democracy and hope and the onrush of racism. I don't know what, however else you want to slice it. And they, it's two weeks till the election. Everything is, as we keep saying, everything is going their way. 35 million people have voted. If you believe the polls are generally correct, that would mean that if they are as snapshots of right now, that uh, Biden is now around four to four and a half million votes ahead of Trump. Uh, if you do the math on, you know, if you apply the polling nationally to the early voting uh, figures uh, as as defined by um, party. So uh, he's already 4 million ahead and Hillary only won by three nationally. And so, and there's another two weeks of early voting to go. And I know you're not supposed to bank early votes and all of that, but you know, this is now paralleling. If Biden's about nine points ahead, Democrats in 2018 won nationally by nine points and they got 40 house seats and they won everywhere that Biden needs to win in order <laughs> to take the Electoral College back. They won in suburban Michigan. They won in suburban Pennsylvania. They won in suburban Ohio. Uh, and so the only place that they didn't really have a great showing was in Florida. But they won in Texas. They won in Arizona. I mean, this is no joke. So uh, they it's not that they should be 
happy or not nervous or like, you know, it's two weeks to go. But panic? I'm telling you, they're panicking. And it's just a very interesting response. Abe, what are you, what are you hearing? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, but this has been the case now, I think, for a while that that um, that there is panic. But I mean, it, it, is it mixed in with a little triumphalism still? Um, I don't. I mean, I mean, there's a kind of Lincoln Project triumphalism, right. you know. Which, but the Lincoln Project triumphalism is, hey, look at us, we raised fifty million dollars, and we've spent twelve on administrative costs. Yeah. You know what that means? They're making a lot of money. This is the best thing that ever happened to these guys. They left, you know, the world of Republican consulting. Money is pouring down on their heads. They're going to buy a private plane. I'm not kidding. So, they're, of course, they're happy. And they think it's going their way. But Can I just say one thing about uh, the focus that we all tend to have on elections about, you know, how how elite, the, the elite panic if Trump might win um, – Israel, and I think would be both delicious and sort of horrifying to contemplate watching for for another four years. But there's also, I think, what's been concerning me is the the attitude about the 46% or whatever. If Trump loses, what will that elite then think of almost half of the rest of the country that did vote for him, right? Because it's not, it's still going to be a fair number of people who cast a vote for Donald Trump. And we we don't have a great way right now because of the polarization of our politics to allow people to lose gracefully. Forget Trump, he's not going to lose gracefully. But what about the people who voted for him, who have a myriad number of reasons to have voted for him, that legitimately think that he should have been, you know, given office for another four years? How, if Biden wins, how his folks and how the media in particular treat that 46 or 45 percent or whatever it ends up being, I think is is uh, I'm concerned about what that's going to look like, because there's there's a huge number of people in this country who do want Donald Trump in office, even if they don't like him personally. Um, And I don't think that the dismissiveness and the contemptuousness with which we've seen those people treated by our elite institutions for four years is going to fade automatically. But there there are some some uh, challenges ahead for our cultural elite with regard to Trump voters, I think. I worry. I just worry. (laughs) Noah, so talk to us a little bit about Amy Coney Barrett and what you were you were alluding to before. Yeah, just that the polling indicates that um, the Democratic strategy around Amy Coney Barrett, which is multifaceted, has completely imploded. Um, We've been watching polling mostly at a morning consult, um, generally showing her favorability. She entered this confirmation process after her nomination, pretty polarizing figure, generally uh, not especially well-liked and a lot of trepidation and just outright opposition to the notion that she should be confirmed before election day. And then morning consult began to show it tick up even before her confirmation hearings. During the confirmation hearings, her, her favorability ratings increased pretty dramatically. And we have some new data today. You cited this um, New York Times Siena poll, the last of the of this cycle. And both the the primary aspects, the primary pincers of this democratic strategy, have collapsed pretty pretty precipitously. Do you think the Senate should vote to confirm the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett before the election? They asked voters, um, and a astounding plurality: forty seven percent approved of her confirmation before election day. Only thirty nine percent were against it, um, and. Further, if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed to the Supreme Court, should uh, Democrats pursue an increase of the size of the Supreme Court, a.k.a. court packing, that proposition is preferable to less than a third of the electorate. 31% say yes, they should go for that. Almost 60% say no. And this dovetails with a Gallup poll out this this um, this morning, which shows a majority, 51%, support confirming Amy Coney Barrett to the bench. Now, I didn't say when, but it's pretty well understood at this point that this is going to be before the election. 46% disapprove, um, which shows you the the polarizing nature of this. I think this Gallup poll is kind of an interesting artifact of this election cycle because it shows that most people have an opinion on this thing, which is sort of an interesting uh, reflection of the general election, but it's not a perfect proxy for the general election. Because fifty-one percent support her confirmation, that includes a fair number of people who do not support 
Donald Trump. Obviously, um, right? Because Trump sure. in this same poll is at 41%. So well, no, talking- not in Gallup. Gallup doesn't do Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But um, uh, but just to, you know, br- one final observation, which is a little bit of levity on my part, and it's just something that I that I hammer home pretty often, uh, among independents, 52% um, Barrett's confirmation, which Gallup found, is identical to what it was among independents uh, when um, they were replacing Justice Ginsburg, which suggests that, you know, to me, which is a hobby horse of mine, is that this cult of the independent moderate voter as the antidote for partisan and ideological excesses is completely nonsensical because these people do not evaluate things based on uh, traditional metrics we would normally evaluate things on, like who these people are and what they support and your ideological priors and your policy preferences. They vote on more uh, instinctual notions of like, like what a person, uh, you mean the, Burg- the burgundy example. dress, burgundy, the right. Burgundy and, and personal dress. comportment and I'm, your family I'm, I'm, and your story and all the that burgundy stuff. Burgundy dress. It's magenta. Burgundy. It was magenta. Okay. I know it's magenta. It's okay. listed as magenta. So, okay. Our listeners should know we have an ongoing battle about yes. the color of her first yeah. day hearing dress. Yeah. <laughs> you said berry. I said some Barry? form of berry. Right. Yes, yes, like a But is there just to, to, for the sake of being provocative? What if what the um, the support for Amy Coney Barrett um, tells you is that maybe this is actually capturing a more accurate state of the country on Trump? Because it because because isn't it safer to say that you support? her nomination than that you're voting for Trump? I would put a whole lot of money down that Donald Trump does not get 51% of the vote in two weeks. Okay, no, but I I think Abe's making an interesting point. The thing is you would want other data that uh, follows that. Like, for example, uh, why wouldn't the Republican senatorial candidates be running ahead of Trump? In other words, if you're going to lie to pollsters and say that you're voting for Biden and not for Trump, you are not then obliged to lie and say you're voting for the Democrat in the race rather than the Republican or, you know, or, or in the house races or something like that. So there's no effect, uh, that, that, that suggests, uh, but instead the Democrat, the Republicans are very harmonized like in, uh, in North Carolina, the Senate race is kind of dead, even with the presidential race. Uh, and so I, I don't, I, I really, I honestly don't, don't think it reads that way. I do think that one, the Amy Coney Barrett nomination was good for Democrats because they raised a huge amount of money in its immediate wake. They raised hundreds of million dollars in the wake of, of the, of the violation of the norm that uh, McConnell had established in 2016. So in that sense, it was useful to them. And in one other way, you can say that um, everything is so much about Trump that it can be about nothing else. Maybe it can be about these senators who are active players at the current moment. But if there is no exogenous reason to vote against Barrett, you know, if there's no um, Christine Blasey Ford in the Barrett, you know, going at Barrett, uh there's no way for anything to blot out Trump as the focus of everything. And you can't treat her like she's Trump. They couldn't treat her like she would. They couldn't figure out how to talk to her about her. Now, maybe if they hadn't done the bigoted anti-Catholic stuff in 2017, when she was up for the appellate court, Maybe if they'd let her alone, they could have they could have surfaced all of it later. I don't know. Anyway, all of uh, what? The, the people who the, think that the, she's in a cult think that she's in a cult. The thing is that the, no, the but the Democrats works. on the, the Democrats on the committee tread incredibly lightly. They went very light on the religious stuff because they thought that it was that they had learned from their example. Now maybe it would have boomeranged on them, but I'm saying that they didn't have an idiot they didn't have a line of attack on her 
we, you know, you watched, you watched it more than I did. They yeah, didn't have That's a line of attack. Well, what I'm saying from this data is that it suggests that people do make a distinction between Donald Trump and right. everything else. And people exactly. do not see the Supreme Court as an extension of the political process, which is what partisans see. But I'm saying, I'm saying something slightly off, which is there's no way to get any traction on anything in October with the presidential election coming on. And this idea that it's the most important election of our lifetime and 150 million people are going to vote to distract people by focusing them on Amy Coney Barrett. Like that was, that was, and they, I think they kind of implicitly figured that out that just as Biden wants all the focus on Trump, Democrats want all the focus on Trump. They don't want to start talking about other stuff, which by the way is why maybe they're making a mistake by going crazy over QAnon right now because they're shifting focus away from Trump to QAnon, even though they're saying, well, QAnon likes Trump and Trump likes QAnon, whatever. You know, Biden's put a lid on for four days. Why has he done that, right? Till the debate. Is he doing debate prep? Yes. Could he do other stuff? Yes. Why? Because he thinks, they think, that as long as Trump is making all the news, he is reinforcing that 10% lead that Biden has. I believe. And with that, we will... Thank you very much for listening. Go to commentarymagazine.com for the material from the 75th anniversary issue of Commentary. For Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.